Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 148, Mayor Curley's plan to ban the Klan. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about the early 1920s, an era when the Ku Klux Klan expanded into New England and tried to make Boston a capital of their invisible empire. However, their deep hatred for Catholics and Jews, as well as their promotion of, quote, 100% Americanism, made the KKK a hard sell in an area where the population was growing rapidly with a constant stream of Jewish and Catholic immigrants. After staying on the sidelines at first, Boston's colorful mayor James Michael Curley made it his mission to drive the KKK out of Boston. After a few highly publicized Klan rallies in and around Boston, Curley began to fight them with rhetoric and questionably legal manipulation of the city permitting process. But before we talk about Mayor Curley and the Klan, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Now, I wouldn't usually do this, but our pick for the Boston Book Club this week hasn't actually been published yet. Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter is now available for pre-order, with an expected publication date of November 19th. I'm taking the unusual step of recommending a pre-publication book because I'm just so darn excited for this one. My Twitter friend, Rashana Gray, tweeted about it last week, which is how I learned that Carrie Greenidge had written a new biography of William Monroe Trotter, who was one of the most undersung black activists of the early 20th century. He made his name at the turn of the century as the radical response to Booker T. Washington's racial moderation. He published the weekly newspaper, The Guardian, giving him a platform to, among other things, lead Boston's protests against the movie Birth of a Nation as we heard back in episode 121. The author of the new bio, Dr. Greenidge, is a student of African-American political history and radical black political consciousness. She was a longtime historian at the Boston African-American National Historic Site, and she now teaches in Tufts University's Consortium of Studies in Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora, where she's the director of the program in American Studies, and where she's also co-director of the African-American Trail Project. Here's how the Amazon pre-order page describes the book. This long-overdue biography reestablishes William Monroe Trotter's essential place next to Douglas, Du Bois, and King in the pantheon of American civil rights heroes. William Monroe Trotter, though still virtually unknown to the wider public, was an unlikely American hero. With the stylistic verve of a newspaperman and the unwavering fearlessness of an emancipator, He galvanized black working-class citizens to wield their political power despite the violent racism of post-Reconstruction America. For more than 30 years, the Harvard-educated Trotter edited and published The Guardian, a weekly Boston newspaper that was read across the nation. Defining himself against the gradualist politics of Booker T. Washington and the elitism of W.E.B. Du Bois, Trotter advocated for a radical vision of black liberation that prefigured leaders such as Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. Synthesizing years of archival research, historian Carrie Greenidge renders the drama of -of turn-of-the-century America and reclaims Trotter as a seminal figure, whose prophetic yet ultimately tragic life offers a link between the vision of Frederick Douglass and black radicalism in the modern era. In case you can't tell, I'm really looking forward to this one. We'll have a link to the pre-order page in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a panel discussion at the Museum of African American History called Legacies of 1619, Recognition and Resilience. 
You've probably heard the kerfluffle surrounding the 1619 Project, a special edition of the New York Times Magazine timed to coincide with the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia in 1619. The articles and related projects are meant to remind, or perhaps teach people, how central slavery is to the history of the United States. The panel will feature David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin, Peter Wersbicki from Princeton, and our aforementioned author, Carrie Greenidge of Tufts. It'll be moderated by Robert Bellinger of Suffolk University. Here's how the event website describes it. The institution of slavery in English North America began in 1619 with the arrival of roughly 20 Africans in the settlement of Jamestown. What has followed has been 400 years of exploitation and discrimination in many different forms. However, telling this story is not complete without an exploration of how African-American communities have created culture and institutions that have survived despite these challenges. This program will explore both structures of exploitation and forms of resistance. The talk is a joint production of the Museum of African-American History, Roxbury Community College, and the Mass Historical Society. It'll be held on Saturday, September 7th at 4 p.m., with a reception starting at 3.30. The event's free, but advanced registration is required. We'll have the link you need in this week's show notes. Before I move on with the show, I just want to take a moment to thank all our Patreon sponsors. We're flattered that you like the show enough to use your actual U.S. American dollars to help us make it. Making Hub History takes a significant investment of time each week, between thinking up a topic tracking down sources, and then writing a script, recording it, and editing the result. We're happy to put in the time, but it also takes money. Our sponsors help us keep up with the cost of web hosting and security, online audio processing tools, and our podcast media host, and we appreciate each and every one of you. If you're not already supporting the show, you can do so for as little as $2 a month. You'll earn our thanks, as well as special rewards to show our appreciation. You can check out the rewards and become a sponsor by visiting patreon.com slash hubhistory or just go to hubhistory.com and click on support us. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I'm recording this episode in advance for a release on the evening of August 31st. So by the time you listen to this, either Boston's straight pride parade will have happened or not. If it does happen, you'll know by now whether there was a massive counter protest or not. My first instinct is to show up and protest against an event like this, but that's so obviously what the organizers want. They've put together a massive troll of an entire liberal city, and they're waiting for us to overreact. To make sure I don't follow through on my instinct, I booked a camping trip for Labor Day weekend, so I can't show up to protest the straight pride parade. Part of me hopes the rest of Boston shows some self-control and stays away as well. Let these sad little clowns of the alt-right have their troll party but let's not show up and feed the trolls. And yes, the organizers are tied to the so-called alt-right. After the Unite the Right hate rally in Charlottesville in 2017, a coalition of alt-right figures, including Mark Sahadi of the group Resist Marxism, organized a follow-up rally in Boston that was scheduled for August of that year. The scheduled speakers originally included members of a violent white supremacist street gang and members of at least two far-right organizations identified as hate groups by the SPLC. As ridicule grew, attendees soon began dropping out, including a group of Ku Klux Klansmen from Springfield and Boston whom the Herald had reported were planning to attend. 
Many of the speakers then pulled out as it became clear that the crowd of protesters would be dwarfed by the tens of thousands of counter-protesters surrounding the event. Mark Sahadi is also one of the principal organizers of Straight Pride. Like the event in 2017, this idiotic little parade was issued a permit by the city. At the time it was issued, Mayor Walsh tweeted, Permits to host a public event are granted based on operational feasibility, not based on values or endorsements of beliefs. The city of Boston cannot deny a permit based on an organization's values. This stupid little parade isn't the first time that far-right figures have used the pretense of free speech to rile up liberal Boston. And it isn't the first time that the city has confronted organizations affiliated with the far-right. In the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan targeted Boston as an opportunity for expansion. Residents responded with outrage, but the response from political leadership was very different in the 1920s than it has been under Mayor Walsh. Contrast Walsh's statement with this one by an earlier Boston mayor, when the KKK claimed a First Amendment right to hold a massive rally in Boston. The Klan cannot expect to shelter itself behind the rights it denies and the guarantees it repudiates. Back in 1924, Mayor James Michael Curley wasn't playing around, and he attempted to ban the Klan. You'll rarely hear James Michael Curley described without the use of the word colorful. His political career spanned nearly a half century during the era of Democratic machine politics in Boston and the ascendancy of Irish Americans within the Democratic Party. Over this long career, he would serve four terms as Boston mayor, two terms in Congress, one term as the governor of the Commonwealth, and two terms in prison. Curley was born in Roxbury in 1874. His parents had immigrated from Galway, Ireland about a decade before, with his father finding work as a laborer and his mother working as a scrubwoman. He quit school and went to work upon his father's death when he was just 12 years old, working as a delivery boy, in factories, and later as an insurance salesman. At the same time, he continued his education in true goodwill-hunting style, through extensive reading at Boston's public libraries. Even before he reached the age of majority, he'd been knocking on doors, handing out flyers, and caucusing votes for the powerful ward boss, Charles Quirk. We'll learn a lot more about the dirty business of Boston politics in just a few weeks, when I interview Millington Ferguson Lockwood about African-American politics and partisanship in late 19th century Boston. But this was an era in which the Democratic Party was taking control in Boston. While the Democratic Party in the Deep South was rejecting Reconstruction and realigning itself as a nakedly white supremacist organization, the Northern Democratic Party was moderating. Much of this moderation came through the influence of urban immigrant constituencies, primarily Irish Americans at this time. The Democrats had positioned themselves as a friend of the working man, and in the urban North, Irish laborers epitomized the working man. Curley, himself a blue-collar Irishman, embraced this image throughout his political career, which started with an unsuccessful run for city council in 1897 and again in 1898. With Quirk's help, he was elected to the Common Council in 1899 and used his position to find patronage jobs for 700 people from his ward. A profile in the Harvard Crimson from 1949 during the twilight of his career describes Curley in these early days. Curley's first home was near the city hospital in the mudflats of South Boston. It was an environment of native Irishmen, hod carriers, and widow scrubwomen a savage place where you had to be tough to be honest and cunning to be dishonest. 
Curly, at the outset of his career, fell in the middle. He was a politician and therefore cunning almost from the beginning. But in contrast to the previous ward leaders, he demanded that his constituents get something for their vote. After two years on the council, he got elected as a state rep and at about the same time became the Democratic chairman of Boston's Ward 17. In 1903, Curley was convicted of fraud after he and an associate were recognized while taking the civil service exam under false names to help constituents get federal jobs. Far from harming his political career, he made his 90-day jail sentence a cornerstone of his 1904 campaign for Boston Alderman, and he did it for a friend was the slogan of that winning campaign. Curley was a polarizing figure, with the wealthy, old Yankee politicians and Republicans generally disdaining him, while the working poor, Irish Americans, and Democrats revered him. Luckily for Curley, the latter group was in its ascendancy, and he soon set his sights on becoming mayor of Boston. Instead, he would run for the U.S. Congress in 1910. Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, whom we last encountered in episode 144 as the popular mayor during the 1910 Harvard-Boston Aeromeet, had decided that he wanted one more crack at the mayor's office. Curley was the up-and-comer, but he deferred to veteran Honey Fitz in return for a promise that Honey Fitz would serve only one four-year term. Curley's congressional race was successful, as was his re-election, and then he got himself elected as mayor of Boston in 1914. Here's how the Crimson described that first term. In his debut, Curley swept the city with a wave of reform that left his critics gasping. He built schools, playgrounds, and beaches. He hired new doctors for the city hospital. He extended the transit systems and pulled down old elevated lines, making thousands of jobs. When the banks in Boston refused to lend him money for this spending spree, he bolted traditions and borrowed from banks all over the country. Those were the days when newspaper editorials hailed him as the first great leader to emerge from the Boston Irish. But very soon, the mayor began getting into the kind of difficulty that has marked every one of his later regimes. He borrowed money far and above the city's income. He mortgaged most of Boston's real estate, spent taxes that were to be collected in the following year, and secured loans indiscriminately from any bank that would give them. Consequently, he incurred the wrath of not only the bankers who had lost control of the city, but also of many voters who didn't care to see his mysterious financing reflected in tax rate hikes. His polarizing effect on the electorate helps explain why Curley's terms as congressman and mayor were never consecutive. He served four four-year terms as mayor, but none of them were back-to-back. The Crimson Profile continues, The political hold which Curley has kept over Boston has been a very strange thing. Losing as many times as he has won the race for mayor, he can hardly be called invincible. Yet after every defeat, when his opponents predicted the end of bossism in Boston, Curley has displayed remarkable resiliency and come back to win again. One reason, undoubtedly, is that he leaves the city in such a poor financial condition when he's defeated that the burden of reform overwhelms the next mayor. The two men that shared the mayorality with him during the 20s, Malcolm E. Nichols and Andrew J. Peters, both left City Hall in near disgrace, while Curley reemerged as the city's savior. Maurice J. Tobin, who beat him in 1937 and 1941, seemed to be the only one who could lick the Curley curse. And the moment Tobin went up the political ladder as governor, Curley sneaked in again in 1945, when the anti-Curley faction thought he would be a pushover for anyone who ran against him. 
That last election victory came while James Michael Curley was actually locked up in a federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut, on a mail fraud charge. President Truman had to commute his sentence to allow him to assume the mayor's office. Our story this week, however, takes place during Curley's second non-consecutive term as mayor, which began in 1922. Curley's second term coincided with a major push by the Ku Klux Klan to grow their membership in New England. The Klan had originally been founded immediately after the Civil War by a group of ex-Confederate officers, and it was quickly transformed into a terrorist paramilitary group, using violence to resist federal reconstruction and enforce white supremacy across the South. Starting in 1871, though, federal legislation had allowed the military to basically wipe out the original KKK, and it ceased to exist. Then in 1915, D.W. Griffith released the movie Birth of a Nation. It was the most popular movie in America, and its central theme emphasized the romanticism of the Klan as the honorable guardians of white virtue in the face of menacing African Americans. Though black Bostonians protested the movie, it was wildly popular among whites, as you might remember from episode 121. Griffith's movie inspired a rebirth of the KKK which was founded partially on memories of the original Klan and largely on what viewers saw on the screen. This new organization was dedicated to upholding the racial hierarchies of the South, but also in opposition to Jewish and Catholic citizens and to all immigration. It embraced a vision of 100% Americanism that was narrowly restricted to white Protestants. Though this second Klan was born at Stone Mountain, Georgia, it quickly began spreading north as the country was inundated with a wave of nationalism during and after World War I. In his book on the KKK in the city, Kenneth T. Jackson describes how the Klan oozed into New England. In the summer of 1921, when the Propagation Department had 17 recruiters in Texas and seven in New York, there was but one Klegel in all of New England. The Invisible Empire increased the number of solicitors in the region the following year and gained a small but persistent following. To some extent, its growth was hampered by the fear of Yankee Protestants that the Klan issue might drive traditionally Republican French Canadians and Italians into the Irish Democratic fold. Never strong in Vermont, New Hampshire, or Rhode Island, the Invisible Empire won moderate success in Connecticut and Massachusetts. In New Haven were the headquarters of King Klegel Earl J. Major, the home of exalted Cyclops Arthur Mann, and the largest clavern in Connecticut. Chapters also prospered in the New Britain-Hartford area and in New York City suburbs, Greenwich, Bridgeport, and Stamford. Massachusetts clancraft was probably strongest in Worcester, but the excitement was all in Boston. Grand Goblin A.J. Padden Jr. aired in establishing the headquarters for the Domain of New England within the domain of Boston Mayor James Michael Curley. By the fall of 1921, the resurgent Klan was becoming powerful enough to warrant a congressional investigation, led by the House Rules Committee. A number of black leaders testified against the KKK, including Boston's William Monroe Trotter, who called the organization a real menace to the personal security of millions of citizens. The investigation didn't have the intended effect. In a 1996 paper on the Northern KKK in the 20s, David J. Goldberg writes, Unfortunately for the Klan's opponents, this inquiry backfired and provided the Klan with a vast amount of gratuitous and invaluable advertising. Appearing before a congressional committee, the Klan's leader, William J. Simmons, gave a masterful performance and disavowed all acts of violence committed in the Klan's name. 
faced with a counter-threat to investigate the Knights of Columbus, an embarrassed House of Representatives on the 17th of October dropped the investigation. The free advertising the KKK got from their investigation by a toothless congressional committee helped further boost enrollment in New England. Here in the Boston area, the first mass meeting was held in North Cambridge on the evening of October 3, 1922. A thousand Klansmen gathered in a rented hall to hear addresses by National Leader William J. Mahoney and local chairman F. Ernest Farnsworth, who claimed that the Klan now had members in every New England state and predicted that they would hold a parade of 300,000 masked and hooded Klansmen in Boston within one year. No mention was made of the lynching and racial violence employed by the KKK in other states. Recognizing both the danger of the Klan and the political hay to be made with his Irish Catholic base by opposing it, James Michael Curley issued a strong response the very next day. Massachusetts has, from the beginning of our government, enjoyed a distinction among the states of the Union in the matter of a liberal interpretation of the constitutional guarantees and rights of all men living within her portals. The value of her interpretation was emphasized in the World War, where, under the selective draft system, absolute equality without regard to race, creed, or color obtained. The most valued lesson furnished by the World War may be forgotten in those sections of America south of the Mason-Dixon line where illiteracy and child labor and industry are found, but are still remembered in Massachusetts. The appearance in the university city of a delegation of men and their foul assaults upon the rights and liberties of their fellow Americans makes necessary a message to the rest of America, namely that the un-American principles and propaganda presented by the Ku Klux Klan represents a menace that decent men will not tolerate and that every agency which the Constitution provides for the safeguarding of the life, liberty, and happiness of the people should be speedily invoked to that end. Curley wasn't the only one who had a strong reaction to the Klan rally. Ten days after the event, two homes in Cambridge were pelted with bricks, rocks, and bottles. The Globe said that bricks were thrown through the windows of a house on Dudley Street on October 13th, reporting, The bricks were wrapped in papers, upon which these messages were written. Brick number one. You red-headed so-and-so, if you attend another meeting, we will kill you. Brick number two. This is for you, you KKK. Signed, a good Catholic. Brick number three. We are the opposition to the KKK. We are going to kill you. The next night, a house on Clarendon Street had a bottle and bricks thrown through the windows, with the Globe reporting that the bricks were again wrapped in paper, which bore, quote, some scurrilous writing. Both homeowners denied being Klan members or having attended the North Cambridge rally. Nobody was caught for the brickings. Similarly, a group of boys got hauled into court in January of 1923 after, as the Globe put it, they were among a mob of youths who stormed the Harrington House with snowballs. Mr. E.A. Harrington was a self-described charter member of the Boston Klegel of the Ku Klux Klan, who claimed to be second-in-command in New England, and apparently a group of young neighborhood boys didn't approve of his affiliation. The Globe said, Harrington was greeted with a deluge of well-aimed snowballs as he stepped off a streetcar last evening returning home from work. He's employed as a trainman on the Boston and Maine Railroad. He ran to his home on Dennis Street a short distance away and telephoned for the police. A squad of plainclothes men under command of Sergeant Ryan of the Dudley Street Police Station arrived on the scene and dispersed the crowd the members of which were making the Harrington home a target for their snowballs. Opposition to the Klan was beginning to grow beyond brick and snowball throwing as well. 
Though the KKK publicly claimed to be just another fraternal organization, at a time when such organizations were at the peak of their popularity, other white fraternities denounced them. Both the American Legion and the Freemasons called the Klan un-American for their restrictive membership policies and forbade their members from also joining the KKK. In January 1923, Alden Chambers, a past president of the American Legion who lived in the Back Bay, described a months-long campaign by the KKK to win him over with flattery and veiled threats, in hopes that he would convince his organization to warm up to the Klan. He told the Globe that he'd been first approached by two shadowy figures in the dark hallway outside his apartment in September. Upon being assured that I was Mr. Chambers, they immediately proceeded to describe to me the alluring possibilities of the Ku Klux Klan from a financial point of view. I asked them why they picked on me, or even thought that I would ever affiliate myself with such a gang. They diplomatically replied that they'd been advised by a reliable source that I had a strong hold on the young men in the American Legion in New England, and this, they argued, was a fertile field, financially, of course, for me to work on. When they had finished their yarn, I politely but firmly informed them that I was insulted that they had approached me with such a scheme and I reminded them that I was a real American and that I could not be coerced into any such work as that in which the Ku Klux Klan was engaged. They didn't tarry long after this broadside, but on leaving, they fired this parting shot. Think it over. We'll see you again. A few months later, another agent of the KK approached him as he was opening his apartment door and urged him to reconsider their offer. He says that he again refused and threatened to give the Klansmen a wallop on the chin. Then in January, he came home to find a clan robe hanging on his apartment door, which he took as both an offer of membership and a threat. He told the reporter, I'm afraid to burn it for fear that it might drive the rest of the tenants in the apartment out. I guess I'll bury it. That same month, January 1923, Mayor Curley had an open letter to a Texas attorney who'd asked him about the clan's activities in the North entered into the official city record. It said in part, The time has come for the sane elements of American life to organize themselves into a body that will stand unflinchingly back of the law and its enforcement, that will not only pitilessly destroy this Ku Klux Klan abomination, but will drive out of the political, professional, and mercantile life of America the leaders and organizers of the Klan and the men who have given them their aid and sympathy, openly or secretly. The men who are engaged in this monstrous conspiracy are public enemies, unworthy of tolerance or mercy, Lacking even the condemnation of their crimes, insanity, we accord to dynamiters and anarchists. Ku Klux Klanism is a crime against Christianity, Americanism, and civilization. It is a monstrous hypocrisy, a cold-blooded and deliberate fomentation of hatred and persecution to enable its leaders and preachers to grow rich on the credulity of their goals, to secure political power and enable them to transform the American Republic into a huge Camorra more odious than any other political monstrosity that has affrighted the modern world. Unless we destroy it, it will destroy us. But destroyed it must be as pitilessly as rabid dogs are destroyed. They have but recently emerged in Massachusetts with boasts of numbers, but they have that love of safety in a whole skin which makes them court darkness and concealment. Those who are likely to flock to their ranks are of much the same kidney as the ignorant and credulous who recruit the clan in the South with this difference that while your morons affiliate with the Democratic Party, ours seek to control the Republican Party and will bluster and threaten in its ranks. Up here, we feel quite competent to take care of them. 
We will organize and smoke out the political rascals who attempt to capitalize this infamy. The press here in Boston is against the Klan. It must be our business to make them pass from denunciation of the Klan and its teachings to the excoriation of its leaders and teachers. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. The men of the North who broke the might of Germany and saved Europe from its menace are not the men to brook the insolence or recruit the ranks of the Ku Klux Klan. They will war, if war be best, and if they have to fight to make America safe and its law respected and obeyed, there will be little left to this creature of the night to bury. Ku Klux Klanism must be treated as all forms of treason, outrage, and lawlessness are treated, with vigor and without mercy. Let us get rid of this puerile twaddle called 100% Americanism, whose devotees are 100% anti-American. Let us announce our wholehearted hatred of government by church vestries and secret society lodges, and stand inflexibly for the principles of Washington, Jackson, and Lincoln. Let us be led by men, not midnight marauders. Let our totem be the lion, not the coyote, the eagle, not the turkey buzzard. Yours very truly, James M. Curley, Mayor. Big thanks to Marta Crilly at the City Archives for tracking down that document. Despite opposition to their activities, the Klan's membership kept growing around Boston, and especially out in Worcester. In May of 1923, there was a public cross-burning in Quincy that was attributed to the Boston Klegel, and in June, the Worcester chapter burned a cross in Littleton. In both cases, the cross-burnings accompanied public KKK initiation ceremonies, which was the standard practice, as outlined in David Goldberg's paper. The Klan perfected its recruiting activities. The KKK usually announced its presence in a community by burning a large cross on a local hillside. Next, they would show up in full regalia at a Sunday service and make a charitable contribution to a sympathetic minister. After gaining additional members through barbecues, picnics, and other social activities, the KKK would hold a mass nighttime initiation ceremony at a local farm or park. Finally, as a vivid demonstration of its strength, the Klan would stage a masked parade through the center of town. As the year progressed, Klan activity in the Boston area accelerated until it seemed to come to a head in October. First, Newspapers reported that a church on Tremont Street in the South End had been hosting KKK meetings every Sunday, under the cover name of the Protestant League of Massachusetts. The chairman of the church trustees denied any knowledge of Klan involvement, and the president of the Protestant League said that they weren't affiliated with the KKK. That statement strains credulity when you realize that the president was the same Mr. E.A. Harrington whose house was pelted with snowballs the winter before. By this time, he openly admitted to being an organizer and recruiter for the KKK. However, he told the Boston Globe that the Protestant League was not a cover for the Klan. There would be no necessity for concealing our identity were we holding a Klan meeting. The Klan has been organized in Boston since 1920 and is holding regular meetings. There are thousands of Klansmen in Boston, but they mind their own business. Immediately contradicting himself, he also said that the Klan's meeting place and membership list were top secret. He said that the fact that he was a recruiter for the Klan was just a coincidence. The fact that the featured speaker at that week's Protestant League meeting happened to be the brother of the King Klegel of the main KKK was also a coincidence, of course. When Mayor Curley read about the Klan meetings, he hit the ceiling and decided to declare war. He wrote an open letter to the chairman of the city board of assessors, announcing his intent to withdraw the church's tax exemptions if it turned out that they were hosting KKK meetings. Dear Sir, 
Boston newspapers under the date of Monday, October 1st, carry a story setting forth that the Shawmut Congregational Church had been leased on numerous occasions recently by the Ku Klux Klan and other organizations for public meetings. In my opinion, it would be advisable to institute an investigation at once for the purpose of determining whether the Shawmut Congregational Church is a religious body or a commercial institution. If it is a religious institution, it's entitled to exemption from taxation. But if it is conducted for commercial purposes and revenue is derived from leasing of premises that enjoy exemption from taxation while being regarded as a religious institution, it would be advisable to tax the property on the basis of full valuation. The Shawmut Church on Tremont Street was valued at $100,000 at that time, so their tax rate would overnight go from zero to $2,470 a year. With churches off the table, the Bedsheet Brigade began looking for a meeting hall to rent. Rumors circulated that the KKK had retained the Boston Arena, today's Matthews Arena on the Northeastern University campus, but arena management said that they had refused the Klan's offer. Meanwhile, the Klan announced that they would hold a mass rally in Boston on October 23rd. The day before the event, no location had been publicly announced, and the mayor ordered the head of the city licensing bureau to make the rounds of all the halls and report on who had rented them for the coming week. None had rented to the KKK. At least, none that would admit it. The Boston Globe reported on the plan for the coming evening. The mayor and police commissioner Wilson have an understanding about the matter and all Boston police will be on the watch tonight for any Klan rendezvous in their respective districts. The police will prevent disorder, and incidentally report the location of the meeting, if there is one, so that the license may be revoked by the mayor. If the KKK met at a public hall, the hall would lose its entertainment license. If they met at a church, it would forfeit its tax exemption. Mayor Curley had effectively banned the Klan from meeting in Boston. While this sounds like a good thing, not everyone was thrilled with the decision. The ACLU, which had been founded just a few years before to protect conscientious objectors and people who spoke out against World War I, believed that suppressing the Klan started the city down a slippery slope toward censorship. The president of the Boston chapter of the ACLU wrote to the mayor saying, The American Civil Liberties Union has publicly scored the Klan for some of its acts and has no sympathy with it. Yet the union protests, and I protest, against any interference with the rights of free speech. I feel confident that such persecution of the Klan will only result in increasing the number of its sympathizers, and it will also outrage the feelings of many persons who dislike the Klan, but care more about the preservation of the institutions of this country. I sincerely trust you will withdraw your opposition to the meeting of the Klan. Mayor Curley declined to withdraw his ban, writing in reply, The Klan cannot expect to shelter itself behind the rights it denies and the guarantees it repudiates. There is no law that can kill bigotry, hatred, prejudice, and the evils that grow out of human ignorance and frailty. The hand of the law cannot reach the heart of the scoundrel, nor the mind of a fool. But the arm of the law is long enough and its hand heavy enough to reach both scoundrel and fool when they undertake to translate their evil passions into actions dangerous to the public welfare. The Ku Klux Klan is a secret evil thing that is disturbing and destroying the peace of America. And as far as it lies in my power, officially and personally, I will thwart this creature of the night which shames Christianity, insults Americanism, assails liberty, and fosters treason. 
Under no circumstances will I withdraw my opposition to this wretched travesty on American citizenship, nor cease to combat a body that shuns the light of the sun and finds its ideals in the bat and the obscene creatures of the night. Despite its lack of success in the case, the ACLU still regards their opposition to Mayor Curley's ban as an important milestone in developing the organization's mission and its dedication to protecting unpopular speech. As recently as 2014, they wrote in a blog post, The KKK of the 1920s was a horrific thing, but Mayor Curley proved that progressive social reformers could be painted as equally horrific and their speech just as deserving of suppression. Our defensive speech, regardless of speaker, comes down to a simple truth. Once you give the government the ability to silence unpopular speech, no one is safe. Once you start playing favorites with the protections of the First Amendment, you put yourself at the mercy of shifting political whims. Free speech only for some translates directly into free speech for none. Having been shut out of Boston, the KKK now turned its attention back across the river to Cambridge. While there had been a successful meeting in North Cambridge back in 1922, now students at Harvard announced that they had been recruited at that time and wanted to form an on-campus chapter. Up until this point, organized resistance to the Boston Klan had mostly been led by white Catholic organizations. With rumors of a Harvard chapter, the NAACP weighed in, saying, The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People wishes to go on record as believing that it would be better to close the university than to permit it to become a vehicle for the dissemination of the poison of race and religious hatred upon which the infamous Klan depends to recruit its membership. The idea of a Harvard Klan was met with derision from some of their fellow students. One wrote in an editorial in the Harvard Crimson that college men, especially Harvard college men, supposedly rational and tolerant, should accept the doctrines of the Klan founded as they are on blind prejudice and fierce racial bitterness, is extraordinary. Another article in The Crimson explained how the university's rules made organizing on campus difficult for the KKK. As we've heard, the Klan enforced a strict code of silence, and that, despite all the skull and crossbones skullduggery, was technically not allowed at Harvard. The national officers, as well as some of the Harvard Klansmen, seemed to fear the application of the university's rules against secret societies. Parietal Regulation No. 31 declares that every society of students shall give the regent, at his request, a complete list of its officers and members. And the statutes of Harvard University declare that the regent is also expected to inform himself fully about all student societies and clubs, and to enforce the responsibility of the officers and members thereof for their proceedings. The idea of forming an off-campus KKK for Harvard students was floated, but soon dismissed as impractical, since there wasn't really anywhere for them to meet after the Klan was blacklisted. With public enthusiasm turning sour and the forces of municipal government and academia arrayed against them, the Klan in and around Boston and Cambridge soon died out, or went underground. The same couldn't be said for the rest of Massachusetts. Klan activities continued for at least two more years in the Boston suburbs and in Worcester. This continued presence by the KKK was a boon for James Michael Curley as he began his first, ultimately unsuccessful, run for Massachusetts governor. He was more than happy to use the Klan as a wedge issue to energize the mostly Catholic, heavily immigrant, working-class Democratic base, while letting the public associate the KKK with the old-money Yankees of the Republican Party. By July of 1924, he was campaigning against the white hoods and masks by saying, Six years ago, we became a united people 
and there was no stain on Old Glory at that time. But during the six years since, the American flag has become soiled. The foulest vermin have nestled in the folds of that flag. It is time to shake out the vermin and drop the Ku Klux overboard. To shake it out through education, through a school system that stamps as a criminal the individual who refuses to accept equal opportunity in a free country. Curley wasn't too proud to employ underhanded tactics on the campaign trail. At a rally in Pittsfield, he gave his standard stump speech. Then as he finished, an aide handed him a printed circular. He held it up in the air so the crowd could see the title, The Ku Klux Klan, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. He claimed that a KKK agent had been passing them out amongst the spectators even as he spoke. The modern cynic might come to the conclusion that his own staff had been passing them out because he had a diatribe against the Kluxers queued up and ready to go. Since speaking, I've been handed this circular. Even here, while this meeting has been in progress, someone has been distributing these circulars in this crowd. I do not know who the Kluxer was who did it, and I do not care. He is hidden. He will not reveal his name. He is where the members of the clan or their ilk were in the Civil War days, in hiding. He is where the members of the clan were in the World War, between the sheets. Is this the way in which men should act in the American Republic? The best, the wisest, the richest, the most liberal ever fashioned upon this earth? The one that has always stood for equality of opportunity and the rights of man? I do not know how many members of the clan there are in Massachusetts. There are said to be 130,000. Let me tell you something. When I am inaugurated governor on January 7th next, I shall secure a number of cattle cars, fill them with a collection of skunks, coyotes, and muskrats, and send them to the land of the hookworm. Have you seen this? It was given to me in this crowd. I am not responsible if I were born a Jew or a Negro. I am responsible as a citizen for only two things. One is my personal character, the other my allegiance to the flag of my country. God is responsible for the rest. I've even seen articles that claim that Curley would have his staff burn a cross in the distance during his speeches to get the crowd riled up. But I can't quite vouch for that one. Curley was also quick to lay responsibility for the KKK at the feet of his Republican opponent, Lieutenant Governor Alvin Fuller, and even the President, Calvin Coolidge. At another rally, he said, The protection today furnished by the state constabulary, acting under orders from the Republican machine to the Ku Klux Klan should end. I have announced my purpose as governor to end the nocturnal gatherings of these prowlers who ply their nefarious work in the dark, sapping and undermining the very cornerstone of our government. I have called upon Alvin T. Fuller as a candidate for governor of the Commonwealth to state what he would do if elected governor upon this most important fundamental proposition. His only answer has been that he stands behind Calvin Coolidge and proposes to continue the policies of the Republican machine in Massachusetts. It is the silence of the president and the silence of the Republican machine that strengthens this most dangerous of all organizations in the nation and in our commonwealth. His position should be made a matter of public record prior to the election, and if he fails to record himself in opposition to this enemy of orderly government, it is the duty of every person interested in the peace and harmony of our commonwealth to oppose his election. Less than two weeks after Curley gave that speech alleging that the state police protected Klan rallies at the behest of the Republican Party, the largest Klan rally ever held in the state took place in Worcester. An article from Mass Humanities explains what happened on the evening of October 19, 1924. Klansmen in sheets and hoods, new knights awaiting a mass induction ceremony, and supporters swelled the crowd at the agricultural fairgrounds to 15,000. The KKK had hired more than 400 husky guards, but when the rally ended around midnight, a riot broke out. 
Klansmen's cars were stoned, burned, and windows smashed. KKK members were pulled from their cars and beaten. Klansmen called for police protection, but the situation raged out of control for most of the night. The violence at the Klan vacation in Worcester led to a slow decline in Klan membership in the area, and no further public events were held. Curley didn't win the election for governor in 1926, but he was back as Boston mayor in 1930, finally winning his gubernatorial race in 1934. His long political career would last until 1950, but the 1926 campaign was the last time he could use the KKK as a wedge issue. However, Boston wasn't finished with the Klan yet. After busing in the 1970s tended to pit black and white Bostonians against one another, the KKK made a new push into Boston in the early 1980s. In 1982, members of the Klan were invited onto a local talk show on WBZ to debate anti-racist activists. As host Nancy Merrill went into the audience to take questions, audience members pulled out hidden eggs and pelted them toward the stage, hitting Imperial Grand Wizard Bill Wilkinson at least once. A shoving match broke out before station staff finally, slowly, got the situation under control. Wilkinson vowed to press charges in Brighton District Court, but then three days later he led a KKK parade that led to City Hall Plaza. Hundreds of counter-protesters converged on a small group and police moved in to separate the sides. In the chaos that followed, 19 people were injured. The UPI reported, Police said that they clubbed anti-racist demonstrators to protect the constitutional rights of the Ku Klux Klan members. That's a long walk from Mayor Curley's claim that the Klan cannot expect to shelter itself behind the rights it denies and the guarantees it repudiates. To learn more about Mayor Curley's crusade against the Ku Klux Klan, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 148. We'll link to the articles we cited from the Boston Globe, the Harvard Crimson, and other papers. We'll post a PDF of the great open letter declaring war on the Klan that Marta Crilly from the City Archives dug up. We'll also have information about three books that cover the KKK's New England expansion. Plus, we'll link to David J. Goldberg's article, Unmasking the Ku Klux Klan, the Northern Movement Against the KKK, 1920-1925. And just for good measure, we'll have a photo of hooded Klansmen posing with the John Harvard statue on the Harvard campus, a copy of a Klan flyer that might just be the one that Curley used while campaigning, and a video of David Duke speaking at Old South Meeting House in 1991. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and Black Radical, the life and times of William Monroe Trotter, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and you might just hear your voice on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. We are in all your favorite podcast apps, including Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps people find out about the show. 
If you write us a review, just drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.